0: American airplane
1: dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Oh, we don't have time for that. It's the Cold War episode 96, Papa Bear, and uh, we are trying to finish up our three-part introduction to the Marshall Plan, the creation of the Marshall Plan. Give it a happy ending. One of the greatest one of the greatest tricks the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that the Marshall Plan was an act of charity. Right. We're going to give it a happy ending, a happy send-off. Big finish. (laughs) Now, at the end of um, our last episode, I was trying to explain, despite your continual attempts to interrupt me and uh, push the conversation forwards, that the Marshall Plan, when it was first suggested, had a lot of criticisms, both internally inside the United States from both the left and the right, right, as well as externally, uh, foreign uh, representatives of they. the countries. You talked a little bit about Stalin and Molotov's position on it. We'll go into that in a little bit more depth in this episode. But it wasn't just the Russians who didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, Ernest Bevan, who you mentioned in the last episode, the British Foreign Secretary, Bevo, yeah, yeah. he... Wasn't happy about it in many ways. Um, But, unfortunately, a bit like Churchill before him, uh, knew that America had his testicular (laughs) fortitude. Boom! (laughs) His testicles in a vice. You will take it Um, and like it, sir. That's for you, Scotty B. (laughs) Um, There's not much he can do about it. Now right. he resented apparently uh, what he referred to as American dollar diplomacy uh, in particular linking the financial assistance that London desperately needed to London's submission on political matters that they thought saw as being central to their British Sovereignty Right Sovereignty. Sovereignty 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 I'll go with that yeah. I think you're right Yeah You do have an education I just get my knowledge from books Sucker um, <laughs> <laughs> The American loan agreement That the British had signed Even before this Back in December 1945 Which Required four months Of humiliating negotiations In Washington Required Required Britain to accept American air and naval bases on British and Commonwealth Territory in return for funds. Damn. That's got to hurt. Now, that's how America was playing the game with their friends. Well. With their number one ally. They're like... Yeah, you know, you're suffering. We get that. Um, You're starving, rations, bombed out, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we get it. But, and we will give you money. It's like, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's like your friend comes to you. Let's say you're rich, like really, really, really rich. Yeah. And your friend comes to you. Best friend. Been with you. Okay, maybe you had some yeah you had some problems like sure. 150 years earlier, long time um, where you took one of your friend's major assets. Your friend had built a co- built a house. Right. Let's <laughs> call it the United States, uh, uh, the colony had built this house, let you live in it, uh, made you pay rent. One day you went not paying rent anymore, and you <laughs> said, "Well, you better." And you said, "No, nah, not going to pay rent." And you said, well, I'll send my lads around. You go, you send your lads, I'll bring my the lads. Giant. And your lads win. Just a cuss. And you go, okay, yeah. now my fucking house. They go, hold on, I paid for that house. Well, Don't care. Yeah. My house now. <laughs> so that's my quick telling of the founding of America. But since that time, you've let cool. bygones be bygones, okay? Netflix and chill. This is the, this is the new reality. <laughs> right, we right. Can, we can, We're all friends again. Yeah. Um, your, your British friend gets themselves into a spot of bother. Um, gets into a war with a neighbour. Um, you come and you, you end up helping eventually. out. Um, eventually, you <laughs> let them get the crap kicked out of them for a couple of years. You just sit and watch and go, well, not my problem, really. I mean,
0: oh,
1: uh, you oh know, yeah, yeah, we're friends yeah. now, but I don't have any beef yeah. with the Germans who live next door to you. Yeah. Finally, uh, the friends of the Germans, the Japs, uh, you know, throw a rock through your window, oh, and you're like, it's "Oh, on. All right, it's, it's now on. it's on, <laughs> bitches!" Now I'm going to come to your assistance. Um, you get in, then your other, your other, your, your other uh, frenemies from around the corner, right. the Russians, come in. You're all fucking in on it. They go, "Well, they, the Germans threw a rock through our window as well. In fact, they knocked down several of our houses in our street. Like we're all in it." <laughs> At the end of it. You know the the worst thing that happened to you was you got a rock thrown through your window. Uh, The British half their house has been knocked down. Yeah, yeah, and they're starving. Snow, you know, they're cold. And you go, listen, yeah, we're we're fabulously rich. You're really broke. We will give you some money to rebuild. But uh, but you 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 got to let us uh, have sex with your daughters. (laughs) You go what? And you have to. That's not right. Well. Yeah, and you have to watch. Well, listen, I'm not here to make moral judgments. Take it or leave it. Deal's on the table. You want the money? You don't want the money? I can walk out right. Well, yeah, I just. But but can't you just give you the money and as a friend? No, it's not. That's not how we play. Give me. We'll give you the money. You got to let us have sex with your teenage daughters, and you have to watch. And. I don't want to see any groan. I don't want to hear any groaning. Right. Unless it's good. I don't want to groaning. hear any complaining. Right. Yeah, no yeah. No <laughs> complaining. You fucking watch it and you love it. That's the deal. So that's how yeah. America was treating their friends. Well, you can imagine how they're going to be treating some of the other countries that are up for putting their hand out for these funds. I,
0: I, I do have to, um, I do have to draw that down a little bit by saying, if you remember when the whole when the war started, FDR, like a lot of Americans, was not very happy with the British sense with the British Empire. Um, yes, they're our cousins and they're our closest allies and all that good stuff, but we did find fault. We were very unhappy. about about a lot of aspects of british culture so are they our allies now yes but we're not in love with them the way we could be or maybe the way some people think we are but here's the other thing do we need them i mean besides providing an island that can't be sunk that's in europe that we can use like when we did during the war i mean what are they really bringing to the party they need us we really don't need them except for i guess for markets but the point is there were things about uh, Britain we didn't like. It wasn't a complete love fest. And it's, you know, business is business. And so this is literally the, the economy, the livelihood of all the Americans. So we're going to do whatever we have to. If we have to play hardball, nail in your daughter while you watch, that's just the price who I'm willing to pay to make sure that there's always jobs in my country. That's just the way the game is played.
1: Well, oh, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said it's business. This isn't yeah. humanitarian new, aid. It's new, 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 business new. done in the guise of humanitarian yes. aid. Yes. Everybody
0: understands so we that. Were, yeah,
1: there are conditions right. to taking American money, which Ernie Bevan learned the hard way. Now, apparently, <laughs> his decision to support the manufacture of British nuclear weapons during the late 40s right. wasn't the result of fears about the Soviets. But it was his belief that the country, and this is a quote, could not afford to acquiesce in an American monopoly of the new development.
0: Ah. The Americans were going to do it either way.
1: No, Bevan was saying that uh, we don't trust the Americans. We need our own nuclear weapons. Oh, I misunderstood. Because you can't trust the Americans, basically. He was right. Bevan, the British were building nuclear bombs, not because of future fears of Germany or the Russians, but because of fears about the Americans.
0: But but in a brutal, when it comes down to brass tacks, you cannot have an ally. You have to rely on yourself. And yeah, you need your own nuclear weapon if your friend has one too. And I know that sounds incredibly whatever, but that's really what the last 2,000 years of history and warfare has taught us, you really can't trust anybody but your own. You better have a nuclear weapon if you can.
1: And you can't even trust your own. No. Um, Bevan saw his country as, and this is a quote, the last bastion of social democracy, (laughs) standing against both the red tooth and claw of American capitalism and the communist dictatorship of Soviet Russia. Now, mind you, this is coming from a country that until recently had imperial control over 25% of the world. So, mm, mm, smell smell that social democracy, I, Ray. I, breathe I, it in. <laughs> breathe in that good social democracy I'm run waffling. by I'm the, the, I'm the imperial domineers of the world. But
0: I have to ask, I mean, and again, th- this is what, this is probably one of the most important things that we could ever convey in our in our podcast is that that's how the world is. The United States is like, we're the good guys, the communists are the bad guys. The communists are saying, we're the only ones who can stop American economic dominance. We have to do something. And now you've got the British saying, we are we are the last bastion of whatever it was, liberal whatever you just said. But the point is, everybody thinks they're the good guys, and everybody thinks that everybody else is the bad guys. And, and that's just, I know that sounds silly when you stop and think about it, but that's the way every country operates, and it will never Forever changed, and if you can get that idea through when you watch in the news or whatever, things will make a lot more sense, or at least you'll be able to understand it a lot better. That's just the way the human brain works.
1: The Romans thought they were the good guys. Well, they knew it. Alexander the Great thought he was the good guys. The The Nazis thought they were the The good guys. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's absolutely everyone in history always thinks they're the good guys.
0: We're the best, and we're the
1: good guys. Yeah, and we're trying to make the world a better place. Exactly. Now, as you've indicated, um, also another another recent ally Allie? ally 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 a mm-hmm. double l y. It just looks like if Allie. you want to what say Allie, ally, I can
0: go along with. I can get on board. I have no
1: problem with that. Ally McBeal, <laughs> Duckface. Um, <laughs> I get on board with her in the early Wow. Um, Harrison Harrison Ford did get on board. He, he tapped yeah. that, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, another recent ally who was also suspicious is, of course, Russia. Right now, I think as you 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 hinted at in a previous episode, even before all of this came out, uh, Stalin uh, already had a constant flow of intelligence from his spies, <laughs> uh, like. Guy Burgess, who was in the Foreign Office in London at the time, and Donald Maclean, who was at the British Embassy in Washington, he's got a lot. The Cambridge, the Cambridge Five that we we talked about in great detail Fab earlier on in the series. Maclean um, had access to all of the British Embassy's classified Ooh, cable traffic, yeah, and he was reporting to Stalin that the goal of the Marshall Plan was to ensure American economic domination of Europe. So that's what he was getting from inside the British embassy in Washington. And
0: that was their That's opinion. what was
1: being Yeah. That's what was being talked about, yeah, in the British embassy. Right. Was that that was the that was the British view <laughs> of the Marshall Plan. <laughs> that's
0: their interpretation of what we're doing when we're trying to help. But but they're absolutely right. I mean, at least they had the I don't know, the intelligence to see it for what it was, because they've probably done it themselves in the past, and now it's America's turn.
1: And as you said last time, uh, the the, the spies were also telling Stalin that the British and Americans were getting ready to renege on the Yalta and Potsdam agreements regarding reparations to Russia. Yeah. They were going to cut off German reparations, which at the time was the Soviet Union's only source of foreign income. Yeah. They were they were counting on that to rebuild. Remember, the USSR had been destroyed more than any other na- nation by the Nazis, mm. uh, and they were counting on these German reparations to rebuild. Now the Americans and the British are going to cut it off, and instead, they're not just going to cut it off; they're going to rebuild Germany right to an economic into an economic power again, at least in parts lot. of it that they they have administration right. over. Yeah. Um, now, one of the reasons why the Marshall Plan had to be implemented outside of the United Nations framework, apparently, <clears throat> we, we talked about this in the last episode, uh, uh, why not just, this was Henry Wallace's idea, right? Let's just give the money to the UN and let them distribute there's it. There's an idea. Was because Germany wasn't a member of the UN. Ah. Uh. And so if the UN was handing it out to member nations, they couldn't give it to Germany and the Americans wanted it to go to Germany, so they're like, no, 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 no. I don't know why they couldn't give the rest of it to the UN and go, we'll just take care of Germany ourselves. Yeah. But apparently that was the just, one of the justifications for not giving it to the UN. Yeah. Now, I wanted to point out that, and we've mentioned this briefly before, but just to, to point it out again, in the early stages when they started talking about the ERP, the uh, European uh, recovery plan. Mm-hmm. They were saying that the fund, the Americans were saying that the funds were going to be offered to East, Eastern European countries and the USSR. Um, but there were conditions, big conditions. Now, one of those was that you had to agree upon a common economic plan for how you're going to use the resources, and it was going to be based on market capitalism. Right. You say that like now, a bad thing. Uh, Yeah, well, obviously it was a bad thing for the Soviets and and the Eastern European countries where they had influence. Ah. Now, a lot of these Eastern European countries, like Poland, desperately wanted the financial aid that the Americans were offering. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the Soviets, you know, Stalin and Molotov, realised that if if Poland and uh, these places were to take money, it would mean they would end up gravitating in the into the US orbit. Right. And they would become part of the American trading system, not the Russian trading system. And one of the other conditions that people don't often know about is part and parcel of the Marshall Plan was the Americans had a very, very high degree of say in how the money was spent. Right. First of all, it forced The recipients of aid to buy products from American companies. Mm. And the countries had to create a separate fund of their own money, which the Americans also got to control how it was spent. (laughs) Damn. I love this country. One of the special provisions um, says that the administrator which is uh, we'll talk about the administrators of the ECA uh, soon they were, they were set up to administer the money, American organisation. The administrator is authorised to use funds made available to promote an increase in production in participating countries of materials required by the US where there are actual or potential shortages in the US. Wow. This involved strategic goods for military purposes and prevented recipients of the funds from selling these things to Moscow or Eastern European countries. Um, so basically, the Americans had engineered into this a clause which said, oh, uh, by the way, uh, we have the right to buy any of your stuff that we say we want, right? including your uranium, all your uranium and your plutonium and any other strategic materials that we need that we want to stockpile. Cheers. So... If, if if the Soviet Union and the, and the other Eastern European countries had signed up to take Marshall Plan money, they would have had to agree to not only letting American corporations run amok in their countries, not only to putting together a fund of money which the Americans then got to determine how it was spent, but also to sell any products that the Americans wanted back to America and they couldn't sell it to... Anyone else will keep it for themselves.
0: I mean, that is literally the equivalent of making you inviting you over to my house, making you a nice meal, walking you to my bedroom and then pretty much laying you on top of my wife. I mean, is there anything else that the Americans could possibly ask for? I'm sure they would have tried. No, it's
1: it's it's more like inviting you over to dinner and then saying, "Now I'm going to fuck your wife while you watch <laughs>
0: and enjoy it."
1: You go, well, but but I don't want it. Well, hey, you, you ate the dinner, so <laughs> yeah. But seriously, was it? I mean, your own. Was there? A... Go ahead. Was it... did did you not read the part of the invite where I said, "Come <laughs> over for a five course sumptuous meal," and at the end, I'm going to fuck your wife? And You go, yeah, but I but I didn't. I thought that was uh, a joke. Yeah. Huh. No, no one's laughing. No,
0: no, no one's laughing.
1: Well, no I'll joke. be laughing, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, she'll be crying <laughs> i'll be laughing
0: no but i mean but again I'm, the americans could turn to them and go look i just saying that this is too much for you you don't have to take the deal you can just keep starving to death while your neighbors who take the deal will suddenly start to turn their economies around but hey it's up to you no pressure
1: yeah, yeah. and they knew um the the Soviets would probably turn it down Although, mm-hmm. if they hadn't, it probably would have been the smarter move um, If the Soviets had just said, sure, okay, you name it Yeah, okay, yeah. fine, whatever you want, give us the money Give us all your stuff And then basically done what Stalin and Molotov were experts at it's Like at Yalta Yeah yeah, they were like, sure, American. we'll agree to whatever you want us to agree yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, sure. Where do I sign? Yeah, not a problem. Where do I sign? Not a problem. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> oh, don't worry about the details. We'll work out <laughs> the details later. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's all good. Uh, um, they should have done that. And in fact, that's what their ambassador, Novikov, yeah. um, recommended. Just, just say yeah. Just say yeah. yeah. We'll sort it out later. Um, but probably the biggest mistake of his life... Stalin refused to be part of it. Yeah. Um, Which turned out to have dramatic consequences for the Soviet Union and also for the rest of the world. Now... Sorry, I, I, do you want to say something?
0: just just add and interjecting some more politics here? Another thing that pretty much set the tone for the Soviets not being able to to participate one month before um, Truman signs this into law, because again we're talking about that's it's different uh, properties and, and trying to sell it to the American people. But once Truman is about to sign it, a month before that, on March fifth, nineteen forty-eight. Um, The United States, Britain, and France send out a message to the world, and they say they plan on coordinating their economic policies between the Anglo-American bi-zone in Germany that's already been brought together, but this time they're putting it together with the French zone, and they're going to incorporate Western Germany into the Marshall Plan and create a Western, a West German federal government. So again, they're doing everything they can to try to move forward, to get this area ready for the Marshall Plan, and at the same time doing everything they can to purposefully upset Stalin so he knows that he's not invited to this Marshall Plan uh, party. So the point is, the Americans have already, you know, and you have to you have to be honest and say people like um, uh, Harriman with um, with uh, Moscow, he's frustrated, and then you've got uh, Kennan who's frustrated and now it's Marshall who's come along who's been dealing with these people for a year and he's frustrated the, the Americans for good or bad have just decided to move on their own and when they decide to move on by themselves without Britain, without France, without Russia they're doing it pretty fast and again they're just closing the door. Russia really is, by this time has absolutely no choice, no no chance to participate in the Marshall Plan
1: because the Americans have made it so. So the Marshall Plan, like the Truman Doctrine, has to be viewed, at least in part, as a political tactic mm-hmm. for Truman. Right. We talked about in the earlier episodes how he wasn't very popular. Guys like Walter Lippmann were very publicly calling right. him an embarrassment, <laughs> yeah. a bit of a fraud. He'd had to fire his own Secretary of State, Jimmy <sighs> Burns, for undermining him. Mm. The economy was starting to tank. Um he needed something to make him look popular, to make him look like a good guy, a big visionary, yeah. presidential again. Yeah, The Marshall Plan was definitely part of that. And even as we said earlier, the the, the naming of it as the Marshall Plan and not the Truman Plan was obviously to uh, – I mean, even though it wasn't officially called that, but uh, they sort of
0: yeah, managed to did. get a
1: friendly journalist to call it that. Ah. Um because Marshall had a huge amount of octoritas and gravitas, as you said, whereas Truman did no. not. But still, they needed to sell it to the public, mm-hmm. and to do that, they created an organisation called the Committee for the Marshall Plan. Oh, um, kind of a also down. known as the also known as, and I love this, the Citizens' Committee for the Marshall Plan to Aid European Recovery. That sounds wholesome. The, doesn't it? Yeah. The Citizens Committee. Rule, rule number one. Anytime something's called the Citizens Committee, you know, you know, that's, put your hand on your wallet. That's right. be, you, you be, be like me <laughs> in the tram in Athens. You know you're about to get robbed. Yeah, as soon as host. something's called the Citizens oh, Committee. Yeah, yeah. Now, the committee was led by eminent people such as Alan Dulles, uh, president at the time of the Council on Foreign Relations, later to become the director of the CIA. Right. Alger Hiss, at the time president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and, as we've discussed in previous episodes, <laughs> Soviet spy. But that wasn't out there. Philip. Yeah, but no one knew that at the time. <laughs> Philip Reed, chairman of General Electric. Nice. Dean Acheson, undersecretary of right. state later to become Secretary of State, Robert Patterson, Secretary of War, Hugh Moore, President and Founder of the Dixie Cup Company, (laughs) Winthrop Aldrich, President and Chairman of the Board of the Chase National Bank, Union Leader James Carey, and another Union Leader David Dubinsky. Now, basically, the job of the CMP was to sell the idea of the Marshall Plan to the people. It was a propaganda organisation. Wow. They put out a whole variety of press releases and they'd write editorials and do radio broadcasts. They would go out and give talks. They would hire speaker bureaus to give talks on their behalf. They would go out to women's clubs and church (laughs) councils and public affair groups. Dean Acheson went on his own speaking tour around the country, talking about American idealism and humanitarian efforts and what a great country America was. Alan Dulles said, The Marshall Plan is not a philanthropic enterprise. It is based on our views of the requirements of American security. This is the only peaceful avenue now open to us which may answer the communist challenge to our way of life and our national security. So, basically, it's a government propaganda campaign Mm -hmm. to convince the people to let them give their money (laughs) to American corporations in the name of European (laughs) humanitarian aid. That's nice.
0: But I I did read that one thing, as far as the average American was concerned, with all this propaganda going on, that as far as the average American was concerned, the only thing... That would make someone turn towards communism, which is evil, is absolute poverty. And no American likes to think of anybody starving to death or anything like that. And so these people are, are being forced to do something that they don't want to do. And so it's right and just and noble for us to help them. So you're right, this was this was perfect. This was packaged perfectly for the American people. It hit a certain chord in the American people, and they truly thought they were doing good and saving these people from evil, i.e. communism.
1: But let me go back to my point. Yeah. Government propaganda to convince the people to give their money to American corporations that, in the guise of European aid. That
0: sounds wrong.
1: <laughs> All brilliant. Or depending brilliant, depending on <laughs> Your point which of side view. of the ledger you're on. Yeah. <laughs> now this this whole propaganda campaign um, about oh my god the communists are going to take over Europe, um, the fear mongering that was starting to ramp up here. Right. There was actually a congressional committee at the time, 1947, that was looking into this problem of government propaganda. Um, a congressman by the name of Forrest Harness <laughs> famously said, life is like a box of chocolates. My mom says. But he also uh, concluded uh, in their report that government propaganda distorts facts with such authority that the person becomes prejudiced or biased in the direction which the government propagandists wish to lead national thinking, that should be illegal, or something. That's a fucking congressional committee <laughs> came up with that statement, Ray. It's not. It's not me. No. In iTunes, they'll be like, "Ah, oh, Cameron's a fucking communist." But this was a congressional committee right. in 1947 oh that God. concluded that it was government propaganda. But no, Cameron's a fucking communist. Um, oh. Exactly ten years later, Dougie MacArthur, big Dougie Mac, <laughs> right much beloved in Australia because he came here, um, said our government has kept us in a perpetual state of fear, kept us in a continuous stampede of patriotic fervor with the cry of a grave national emergency. Yet, in retrospect, these disasters never seem to have happened, seem never to have been Uh, quite
0: real. That's pretty ballsy of him. He's got a lot of testicular fortitude.
1: Boom, drink. Oh, I love it. Scotty B. Scotty, you have to pay us 20 bucks every each time. Each. Every time we say that. Yeah, each, yeah, each time, 20 bucks each. <laughs> no, yeah.
0: but, but um, MacArthur thought about running for president. So I'm, I'm sure he said that because he thought it was true. But he was also doing it to try to position himself. But yeah, at least he, he, got, he put that out there. So this is a real thing. People are actually noticing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. By the way, in 1949, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles' brother, said, I don't know any responsible official, military or civilian in this government who believes that the Soviet government now plans conquest by open military aggression. Oh, snap. The Soviet government does not contemplate the use of war as an instrument of its national policy. Wow. So on one hand yeah. they're selling. Oh my God, the Russians are coming. <laughs> on the other hand, they're like, nah, it's not really. But you know, let's just yeah. keep telling people. But that. But if you could be afraid for me, that'd be great. All right. Yeah. So the plan obviously passed. The propaganda campaign worked, and I think on top of that, they were more importantly they were able to explain to the politicians, look, this is good. For your constituents. Right. Go out and tell them this, your business leaders. Yeah. Because, you know, we can do... We're going to take all this money out of the treasury and we can give it to anyone we like. Yeah. We have complete control... No one's checking ...over where this money gets spent and... Yeah. ...what prices we pay for the products. Ah. Profiteering. Which we'll get into. Yeah. Now when the plan passed very quickly went into operation the ink was hardly dry <laughs> when ships full of goods hit the high seas what kind of ships whose ships yeah american ships <laughs> uh, there was stipulated that 50% of the ships had to be american <laughs> ships like they going to do it they do it wanted night. to make sure that it, yeah. you know the the, the shipping magnates were like, well, what do we get out That's of right. this? right. Oh, well, well, we'll make sure that at least half the ships are American ships. All right, then. Deal. As long as we're getting paid, right. bitches. Right. We're good. So at any given moment over the next few months, at least 150 boats were going to Europe from America carrying wheat, flour, cotton, tires, borax, drilling equipment, tractors, tobacco, aircraft parts, anything else, big American Right. manufacturers had a surplus of that they needed to get rid of. They were sending to Europe and getting paid Damn. up the fucking wazoo <laughs> for it.
0: Who else got paid? Now, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Who else got paid? The CIA. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah. All right, go ahead. So now in order to administer... hmm Where the money went, Truman set up another bureau, the Economic Cooperative Administration. Oh, I like that. The ECA. I'm surprised it wasn't the Citizens' Economic (laughs) Cooperative Administration. It's too obvious. To make it sound even more propagandary. (laughs) Now, this was again headed by major businessmen in the United States. Who were gonna profit from where the money went, them and their friends, they get this is like putting the fucking <laughs> Fox. prisoners in charge of the prison. Or the foxes <laughs> in charge of the hen house. Or whatever <laughs> fucking analogy you wanna use. Like, oh yeah, we'll just well billions of dollars here. Billions. Billions and billions, as Carl Sagan said. Billions. <laughs> I can't do a good Carl Sagan. Fuck, I love Carl Sagan. My mate, Steve Samatino, Australian futurist, had breakfast with my sons and I the other day and, and he wore a T-shirt with Carl Sagan and nice. uh, um, the new Cosmos guy, whatever his name is, mm. um, double barrel name um, on it just for me because he knows I'm a huge Carl Sagan fan. Right. Fucking Carl Sagan, man. He was my personal Jesus. <laughs> him and him and the doctor right. were my That's personal all Jesus. And and you Luke Skywalker. Yeah, <laughs> when I was like the ten, trilogy. that that was my holy trinity. Right, yeah, holy Carl Tr- Sagan, the Doctor, <laughs> and Luke Skywalker. Um, <laughs> and pretty much nothing's really changed. Yeah. Honestly, I'm nearly fifty. If That's broke, still my holy trinity. It. Now yeah. I add Fidel Castro to okay. that. By the way, yeah. No, I've mentioned this to you. But you know, I've tried to talk you into doing a series on the Cuban Revolution um right. over the years, and you're always too scared because yeah. you're chicken shit. Yeah. Um I've just been reading John Anderson's biography on Che Guevara again. Um it's 20 years since I've read it. Reading, been reading it again at night. Like when I go to bed at 1 a.m. after finishing my research, I have to do some light reading. So I'm reading that. <laughs> um fucking still, man, like one of the greatest stories ever. All right. Like, every time I read this story, I'm like, holy shit. Like, sorry to sidetrack here, folks. But for those people who don't know, and I think we touched on this when we did our Castro episodes, but again, when Castro left Mexico, where he was in sort of self-imposed exile after he got out of prison for the Moncada barracks um, pooch, mm-hmm. um, he jumped on a boat and sailed to Cuba with the intent of overthrowing the Batista government. Sure. He had 80-odd guys on a boat, an old rickety boat. Right. the grandma, they called it. Um, 80, 86, 88 guys, something like that. That's it. Batista's got tens of thousands <laughs> of troops. Weapons. Supported by the latest American equipment and, you know, direct support from the American military and the CIA. Right. Castro lands on the coast with 80-odd guys. Immediately, 60 of them get caught and executed oh. because they got caught in some rough winds. It took them two days longer to get there. So the guys that were supposed to meet them and do an attack some barracks right. to coincide with their arrival were two days early, which alerted the Batista troops to the Castros coming so they were ready for him. So immediately, he loses 60 guys... And all of his guns and all of his food, gone. So he's got 20 guys, and they have to scatter because they're getting shot at by Batista's guys. 20 guys on the island with nothing. No guns, no money, no food. They're hiding in the mountains of the Sierra Maestra, facing tens of thousands of Batista's men. Impossible, you might say. Yes. (laughs) Like a complete... Impossible. Complete... King, complete disaster, clusterfuck, Castro's an idiot. Right. This is never going... These guys are all going to be dead in weeks. Yeah. But uh, three years later, uh, Batista jumps on a plane, runs away, and wow. uh, they all resign, and Castro takes over. That's the story we I mean, got to tell. Man, it is such an incredible story. For the first couple of years, he and his guys, a handful of guys... Are just hiding in the mountains, guerrilla tactics. Right. taking out a battalion here, a battalion there. Um, getting betrayed by you know people taking bribes, and it's just, it's just they've they got no food. They're marching. They're skinny. They're in fucking you know humid, right. swampy forest conditions in the mountains of Cuba. They got nothing, nothing but just little bit by little bit by little but bit. Heart. They fucking overthrow – yeah, it's just an incredible, incredible story, man. Like, how he pulled that off. And it wasn't just one failure when he landed. It was – I mean, he'd failed before that. He had the Moncada barracks attempt, which failed, and all of his guys got killed. Right. There's was only a handful. It was only Fidel and Raul and a handful <laughs> of other guys that survived who were too high profile to be executed by Batista. Che obviously wasn't involved at that stage. He hooks up with him in Mexico. Um, and then then they land, it's a failure. Then they try other things, that fails. It's failure after, yeah. failure after failure after failure after failure. But all through it, Fidel's like, okay, that didn't work, but we'll try again <laughs> tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Got we, faith. I'm going to Yeah, he did. And, and, and in the private diaries of Che and Che's first wife, Hilda, who was in Mexico with him, Um, everyone who met Fidel, this is before, this is the mid-50s, everyone who met him for the first time would go, holy shit, this guy has more self-confidence than anyone ever in the history of humanity. He was just like, no, no, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be president of Cuba. I'm going to take it over. Don't worry about the details. I'm just going to do it. Don't bother with details. Seriously, he reminds me of an Alexander or, or a Caesar, but much older. Like right. Castro was only in his late 20s, 30 at the time. He's quite oh a young God. man. Right. Just the level of self-confidence that he had. Uh, but unlike Alexander, he failed and failed and failed and failed, but just stuck in there. And people just believed in him. And he could inspire confidence in the nice. people around him and his vision. Okay. And yeah. they pulled it off, man. It's like Fuck me, it's a great story. every night I'm like, oh my god Okay, here's what we're Why isn't this the number one story that we tell our kids at bedtime?
0: Uh, uh, here's what we're gonna do. As soon as we finish yeah. the Cold War No, okay, no, yeah. no. As soon as we finish the <laughs>
1: no. Renaissance
0: No, it's gonna go on for a while.
1: No, no, uh, it's gonna be part of the Cold War. When we get to yeah. the mid fifties then, we'll then we're only we're only like eight years away in our storyline. <laughs> we are okay. gonna we are gonna do this. We're gonna stop we're going to take a year, and we're going to do the Cuban Revolution. That would so be cool.
0: cool. I have no problem with that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So. Where were we? Back to back to where we were. So the plan passed, and they start shipping stuff to the US, and he creates this propaganda outfit. Uh, the oh, Not propaganda, sorry. We're, we're up to the Economic Cooperation right. Administration, the guys that are determining how the money gets spent. Yeah. So, again, they didn't just send big pallets of cash to Europe and go have at it. <clears throat> um, it was actually... More a credit-based system. You got credit oh, that you could spend. Okay, but I'll go into that in more detail soon. Right. So, by the way, the guy who's running the economic cooperative administration is the same guy who created the propaganda outfit, the CED. Paul Hoffman, the head of Studebaker, yeah, um, was much better at propaganda apparently than in he was cars. at making cars. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he 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 was. He helped sell the Marshall Plan to the American people. Then he basically ran the Marshall Plan right. afterwards and got to hand out the money wow. to his friends. Um, I don't know how many Studebakers were sent to Europe, but Right, I'm sure he got looked after. Now, yeah. uh, the historian Anthony Carew summarised it this way. The Marshall Plan was in all major respects a business organization run by businessmen. Yeah, Jeez. I mean, you, sorry, you wanted to jump in. Well, well don't jump ahead. J-
0: just, just that all those business guys that he had to deal with—they probably all sent him their teenage daughters. I mean, I mean, you you can literally make millionaires and billionaires out of your friends if they're not if they don't have that status already. I mean, that's how much money we're talking over the next four or five years, and he's in charge of it. And from what I could from what I could tell. You know, he's got his representatives in each capital city to make sure that everybody's towing the American line, but he doesn't have too much oversight. He can pretty much do what, do what he wants, and, there, and because he's a Republican and because he's conservative, they're all happy with him, so it's not like the, the opposition is going to check him. This guy's got carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wants with billions of dollars of taxpayers' monies.
1: And I mentioned earlier that There was profiteering probably going on. The prices were getting hiked up. Ah. Now, I don't have any evidence to back that up. I've seen suggestions of that. But the thing is, no one's ever done a study on this, to the best of my knowledge. So we don't really know what kind of prices people were being charged. I mean, so when these goods are being paid for by the American taxpayers, the prices of the products that are being sent to Europe um, they're going to have a profit margin on. Did that profit margin go up higher than it normally would have been? We don't know, but we do know that that happens today. Yeah. So with things like Pentagon right, contracts, right. when you're taking taxpayer money, it's not real. Which they have no yeah. Which they have no say over. Yeah. And you give it to corporations, particularly when there's an emergency. So there's no time or incentive to check how competitive the prices are that you're being offered. It's not like you go, okay, we're going to send all this food to people in Europe because they're starving. But before we do that, we're going to get three quotes and uh, we're going to, you know, get the best possible price. No, no, no. Do you have do you have flour? Right? How much is it? Okay, that'll do. Fucking let's go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So of course, people are going to charge as much for this as they can get away with, because that's human nature. Absolutely. Greed. What it ended up in... Greed works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This was the largest transfer of wealth during peacetime from American taxpayers to American corporations up until that point in US history. Wow.
0: And... And again, the average American thought they were stopping communism and they were helping starving people. That's as far as I could tell, that's as far as the average American was going with their thinking or reaction to this.
1: And that's true. If by stopping communism, you mean making American corporations richer and by... Helping starving people, you mean American millionaires.
0: uh, (laughs) Then I I got a nail. Okay.
1: Seriously needed more caviar uh, (laughs) to put on their little pieces of bread and drink more champagne. Oh, my God. Now, let's talk about how it worked. So, as I've said before, the Marshall Plan was mostly used for purchases of goods from the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, European nations had used up all of their foreign exchange reserves during the war, so this was really their only way to get imported goods right was to get it under the Marshall Plan yeah. now of the thirteen billion of Marshall Plan A, which finally got uh, passed by Congress got pushed down from seventeen billion to thirteen billion right about two billion went to American oil companies ooh now. According to some guys like Noam Chomsky, this was part of an effort to shift Europe from a coal-based economy to an oil-based economy Mm. because Europe had plenty of coal, didn't have a lot of oil. America had lots of oil, both of them were pulling out of the ground um, internally at that stage and also they'd done deals with the Saudis. So uh, this was a way of America getting uh, Europe hooked on oil. Uh, by saying, well, you can't have coal, right. but you can have oil. Smart. Get them hooked yeah. on
0: what something we have. Right.
1: So that's $2 billion of the $13 billion went to build the American oil markets in Europe. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, the other $11 billion, very little of that money left the United States. <laughs> it literally went from the U.S. Treasury into the pockets of corporations. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, this you know, people might find this hard to believe. You might be calling bullshit on this out here, but that's exactly how it worked. Now, it's not easy to find that out. I have spent years piecing together this story mm-hmm. I, I, because it's something that's always fascinating. Well, well, well before we did this show, I was always trying to figure out how this worked and it's there if you go looking for it. But in most fucking, like you get a book on the Marshall Plan, like Ben Steele's book, right. one or two lines will be about how this works. Absolutely. It's, it's buried in the details. <laughs> buried in all of the propaganda is, yeah, well, actually the money never left the country. Ninety um, percent, 90%, 90% of the funds were actually just a credit that had to be spent on American goods.
0: Right. I I think it's it's funny that um, all this um, bookkeeping stuff started with the Florence uh, that we're talking about in the Renaissance show. And you're right. This is pretty much columns of paper. Um, It's just the money's not actually leaving. It's just being transferred after these credits are being spent and sent to the companies. But it's literally a bunch of paperwork going around in a very small circle from Washington to whatever major city or wherever the factory is at.
1: Or farm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the detail of it, but basically uh, the US took about $13 billion of taxpayers' money and gave it to American companies. There was 90% of it was a credit. There was 10% that was a loan that actually went to the European countries and they could spend it on other things, non-American products, but whatever they spent it on had to be approved by the ECA <laughs> right. and, they, and it had to be paid back with interest.
0: Oh, my God. So
1: they got, to, they got to spend 10% of it on non-American products but approved by America. The other 90% had to be spent on American products. Now, there was this also this thing called the counterpart funds. Mm-hmm. The recipient countries needed to match the, the, the amount that they got in grants in their own currency it was known as counterpart funds. Right. Did you get your head around how that worked? No, please tell me. All right, it's a little bit confusing, but here's one explanation I read of how it worked. And I think I actually got this off uh, George Marshall Foundation's website. Each government that received grant funds had to put an equivalent amount of money into an account in their own currency. Now, the governments reimbursed themselves for the money that they deposited into the counterpart funds account by selling the ECA credits... To their citizens, who required dollars with which they could import goods from the United States right, so the government's got credits, and then they could on sell those credits to their you know to business people basically in their country right um, but the, the businesses needed to pay cash French francs or Italian lira or, or pounds or whatever it was mm-hmm. so the importer. Could be a government agency or a private business applied to the ECA for a credit grant to make a particular purchase that right. would contribute to the recovery of the country. If their application was approved by the US, they could then buy those credits from their government with the currency of his country. Then that money went into an account. Mm. And then I'll talk about what happened with that in a second. But here's an example. So suppose a German construction company wanted to buy an American crane. Right. What would happen is the company would buy the crane from the West German government in Deutschmarks, Mm -hmm. which would then get put into the central bank, into this counterpart fund. The ECA would then pay the American crane exporter in American dollars, for the crane, right. and the crane would be shipped to West Germany. Ah, okay. Now, there were several reasons for doing this, and it wasn't a completely a new idea. They'd been doing this, uh, I think the UN had been doing this for a while. It, it prevented uh, things like uh, balance of payments problems and having to do you know, exchanges with the local currency and inflation, all this kind of stuff. But but the point I wanted to make about all of this is the money that went into the counterpart funds account, also, how that got spent, also had to be approved by the US. (laughs) Complete power. Control. Yeah. So, for example, um, Britain wanted to spend some of their counterpart funds on rebuilding social welfare projects, Mm -hmm. and the US rejected that idea. Yeah, how's that going to help us. Exactly. Yeah. They would only approve projects that would drive the economy. And by that, they meant projects that would mean the country would have to buy more American products in the future. Yeah. So the bags of wheat that Germans were buying that came from the grain belt in the US Mm -hmm. were paid for in counterpart local funds, which the US could technically spend however it wished in Europe. So... Not only did the U.S. get control of how these countries spent their own money, the U.S. had control of how they spent the Marshall Plan funds, how they spent the counterpart funds, and here's the kicker, 5% of the counterpart funds had to be set aside for the U.S. to spend however they liked. Oh, now, according to the actual explanation on the George Marshall Foundation site, right. the 5% was... To stockpile critical materials needed for America's defense. Ah. As I said before, um, and this is one of the reasons the Soviets couldn't sign up to it, is the US were actually going to say, you give us 5% of the money and we're going to buy all of your uranium and <laughs> plutonium and anything else we need. Right. To make bombs. <laughs> that we can then use to attack you if you get out of line. Sounds good to me as an American. And. Yeah. As you were hinting earlier on, some of the money went to... The noble, the above board,
0: the good guys, the ultimate good guys, the CIA. They got 5%. ...of the Marshall Funds, about $685 million. And of course, what did the CIA do with this? They do what the CIA has always done. They've set up fault-front organizations to alter affairs of foreign countries. They interfered with elections. They set up illegal underground opposition groups. They infiltrated local labor unions to break those apart if they needed to. The CIA got its part, and again... You you, you can't get too upset with this because the entire Marshall Fund was about taking care of America economically, and the CIA is going to take care of us um, in ways, I guess, before a problem can become too big. So it's just part and parcel of America looking out for itself. But the more you kept talking – I couldn't help but sit here and cringe a little bit. These countries are at their absolutely lowest point besides a nuclear attack. And here we are using this to our advantage. And I know the world works this way, but still it's cringeworthy to go in there and to control, in some ways, very minute detail, the economies of these other sovereign nations.
1: Um, I'm not sure they got the whole five percent. I read that they got about two hundred million mm. out of the seven hundred million. Okay. So a third to a quarter lot. They got a lot. of it, yeah. yeah. But as you say, they then used it for covert activities in places like France and Italy. So you kind of fucking love this. So the, the these countries, the people of these countries, are giving their money, <laughs> taxation, to their governments. Yeah. Their governments are then giving it to the CIA, who are then coming back. And using it to undermine uh, any sort of social welfare or or, or socialist programs, groups that are happening in these countries. Jeez. (laughs) That is, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's... Give me your own dick and I'm going to come and fuck you in the ass with it. Like, it's... And I'm not going to hold back. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another way that these uh, counterpart funds or the American component of the counterpart funds were used was for a European... Propaganda tour Mm -hmm. It's not enough To fuck somebody In the ass You want to make them Say that they had A good time Afterwards (laughs) And thank you for it Yeah So They had Run a propaganda Campaign in the US uh, Which didn't end By the way After they passed it It continued to this very day, every wow. book that comes out is still part of the propaganda campaign about the Marshall Plan. But they had to do it in Europe as well. They had to say, yes, look, uh, we are taking over your country, but here's why you should thank us for it. It's known as the ERP train. Mm. It was a seven-carriage train full of these same sort of business people right. who basically went on a big holiday at uh, the expense of the European people. Yeah. Uh, giving speeches, extolling the virtues of the Marshall Plan uh, around Europe. Now, here's my question, Ray, as we wrap up. Yeah. When country A gets to dictate to country B how and where it spends its own money, how is this not imperialism in a new guise? <sighs>
0: If you look at it unvarnished, it is absolutely economic imperialism. But if you cloak it, and we are here in your most desperate hour, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're the only one that can help me, um, then then it's palatable to the American people. Who cares? Who gives a fuck what the Europeans think? Because they know they really have no choice. But it's all in what kind of cloth you wrap around it.
1: To me, it was just a smarter form of imperialism. You don't need to invade. You don't even need to really threaten to invade. You just buy control, as Molotov correctly said. Absolutely. The Americans bought their way into Western Europe's economy forever. Yeah. Now, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, I've got one of his books called The Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives that he wrote in the late 90s before he passed away. Good book. Um, he says, he calls it co-optation. Mm. America co-opted Europe's economy. Wow. He talked to this American strategy. He said it likewise relies heavily on the indirect exercise of influence on dependent foreign elites. Mm-hmm. So you go into these countries, you co-opt their elites, their politicians, their business leaders, and you say, look, you let us have unfettered access to your markets and your resources, right? and we will support your political or business ambitions with the tools that we have available to us, cash, uh, positive propaganda, press, uh, photo ops Whatever you need You give us access To what we want And we'll take care of you <laughs> You don't need to invade Yeah If you can co op Those days are over The local elites mm-hmm. And buy them You don't need guns Yeah You always have the threat of guns Right Down the track As the guy who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman said You know if 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 Our ability to buy you ends up failing. Like, that's what happened with Saddam, right? Right. Supported Saddam for decades. And then... And finally, he he stopped answering their emails. (laughs) Then you have to invade and put a new, new guy in control. Right. Right? Yeah. But, you know, war's messy. Yeah. Of course... We also know that it's also profitable, so, you know, eh, but, you know, eh, there are times. We, there, are, If you can make money hand over fist without war, that's good. If you have to go to war, that's still good. Yeah. It's just a different kind of good. Because I'm not dying. Yeah. He says also, getting back to Brzezinski, it's reinforced by the massive but intangible impact of the American domination of global communications, popular entertainment and mass culture and by the potentially very tangible clout of America's technological edge and global military reach. Nice. Yeah? And it's Keynesianism, Keynesian economics at its best. Now, Keynes himself died just before it got underway. He died in April 1946, Mm. a few weeks after participating in the negotiations for a new round of the American, uh, Anglo American loan, where the Brits were trying to get more money out of them right. with all of the conditions that we talked about before, they had these uh, negotiations in Savannah, Georgia, and he described the process as absolute hell. <laughs> Died a few weeks Uh, later uh, uh, and never lived to see the ultimate, ultimate test of his theory implementation. I was going to say implementation of his theory, the Marshall Plan. So let's wrap up. Did it work well? Yes, in a way, it helped get Europe back on its feet. If Mm. that was the intention probably helped stop socialist parties from gaining political power and hence therefore sorry therefore stop the chances of the soviets building stronger economic and political ties in western europe but modern historians tend to say that the marshall plan's impact in western europe was more important psychologically right and politically than it was economically the U.S. historian Charles Meyer said that it was the lubricant in an engine, not the fuel, which allowed a machine to run that would have otherwise buckled and bound. Um, and more, more recent historians say the Marshall Plan provided Europeans as much with psychological reassurance right. as it did economic recovery.
0: That they weren't being abandoned. Right. By the United States. If,
1: if I could give a quote from
0: uh, economic historians Bradford DeLong and Barry Eichengreen, they said of the Marshall Plan, um, and, and every time I read a book, there was always different takes on how effective it was. But, uh, but I think they summed it up well. They said, it was not large enough to have significantly accelerated recovery by financing investment, aiding the re- reconstruction of damaged infrastructure, or easing commodity bottlenecks. We argue, however, that the Marshall Plan did play a major role in setting the stage for post-World War II Western Europe's rapid growth. The conditions attached to the Marshall Plan, aid pushed European political economy in a direction that left its post-World War II mixed economies with more market and less control. So like you were saying, it's becoming a lot, like, uh, a lot more like America. But here's the, here's the big thing when it comes to the Marshall Plan. It drew a line in the dirt that the Russians knew that they could not cross, that they came into Western Europe, something the Americans would react, and they would probably react militarily. They wouldn't just sit there and talk about it. And you're absolutely right. The, the biggest advantage was the psychology uh, of the benefits that came to it. But here's what, what it comes down to for me. You said at the very beginning of this that the real purpose of the Marshall Plan was to take care of the American economy. Well, let's see if that happened. So at the end of World War II, during um, 1944 and 1945, the United States had a deficit of $48 billion. In 1946, we had a deficit of $16 billion. In 1947 we had a surplus of $4 billion, because obviously we're cutting back on our spending. In 1948, when this thing is passed, we had a surplus of $12 billion. In 1949, we had a surplus of $1 billion. And throughout the 1950s, except for 1959, it's either going to be a single-digit deficit or it's going to be a surplus. So as far as did the Marshall Plan Take Care of America, it seemed to have done us very well Um, once we got past the deficits of World War II up until 1959. So mission accomplished as far as trying to take care of ourselves, getting out of um, the shadows of World War II, at least for the next 10, 12 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it created jobs in America, especially in the export industries, just as millions of Americans were being discharged from the armed forces and, and production for wartime right uh, and we're going to be looking for jobs for the first time in its history, the United States didn't suffer from a severe recession due to a lack of spending immediately following the cessation of a major war and reduction in military spending by the government. Uh, it was you know sort of a fr- economic free lunch, yeah as I've heard it described. but uh, it was a scam. Right, well, in a way, Keynesianism, Keynesian economics, taking money from the people, giving it to the businesses. Yeah. Um, Yes, it did bolster the U.S. economy, Mm -hmm. which which created the boom times of the post-war the post-war boom, right, the fifties and into the sixties. Um, right up until the first oil price shock in the early 70s, I guess. And this is despite the US ramping back up its military capacity, as we'll see, which also helped, yes. of course, in, yes. in, in many ways. In
0: early 1950s. Um,
1: yeah, but it boosted the economy and at the same time created a massive market in Europe for American products, yeah. which also helped uh, carry the economy forward after the Marshall Plan ended. But getting back to its impact in Europe, one of the other big things, of course, that it did was to get uh, the Western European market to cooperate economically together Mm -hmm. because they all had to be part of the Ah, same economic plan as opposed to having their own little separate trading blocks. So this led to economic integration, which, first of all, led to the creation of the European coal and steel community, Mm among Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands in 1950. Towards the end of the 50s, that became the European Economic Community, Ah. which then ended up becoming the European Union, which Britain is now trying to dismantle by leaving. (laughs) So uh, it it, it worked, which is the idea that goes back to Napoleon, the unification of Italy. Um, People have talked about it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, or the unification of Europe, yeah. sorry. Napoleon had talked about it. A lot of people had tried it um, after that or talked about it. It was actually the Marshall Plan wow. that is responsible for creating the conditions that led to the EU. And don't take my word for it, former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt mm-hmm. said the United States ought not to forget that the emerging European Union is one of its greatest achievements it would never have happened without the Marshall Plan. Wow. Money talks. And one of, the, one, of the thing, one of the reasons why the Europeans pushed ahead with that integration too is as the American money started to rebuild Germany, mm-hmm. they were all very eager in Europe to make sure that uh, Germany was sort of part of a greater whole. Ah, oh. um, you know, part of a large integrated economy, mm-hmm. no, because you know, the, 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 so I don't know why, but they were a little bit suspicious of what uh, <laughs> Germany might do once it got oh. back on its feet. Oh my god! And of course, Germany today is the economic powerhouse right. of Europe. Right. But at least up until this point, is still being run by uh, moderate. Governments, although the way things are going over there right now, who the fuck knows what could happen in the next few years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just want to finish off a couple of things. Uh, Talk about the amounts of money that were handed out as grants from 1948 to 1952. The United Kingdom got 3.189. Billion dollars. Nice. France, 2.713 billion dollars. Italy, 1.508. West Germany, 1.390. The Netherlands, 1.083. Greece got about 700 million. Austria, 677 million. Belgium, Luxembourg, 559. Denmark, 273 million. Norway, 255 million. Turkey, 225 million. Ireland, 147 million. Sweden, 107 million. Portugal, 51 million. And Iceland, 29 million. Wow. I want to thank our latest uh, subscribers to the show quickly before we go, mm. um, in no particular order. Albert Nunn, Manny Ugello, Michael Svella, Will Haggerty, Jeff Crane, Bailey Fawcett, Alex Dorn, Clinton Riggs, Andrew Zoe, Andrew Wood, Elliot Muller, Rolf Breiger, Simon Bate, Ryan Beaver, Avery Williams, Joe S, uh, Odyssey Villa Gomez, Christoph Gobel, Peter Henyo John Lavin, Andrew Flick, Melissa Van Mark Mulder, Carl Stein, and Abhinav Kaldyalwa. Apologies to everyone whose name I mispronounced. Thank you for supporting the show. Welcome. Hope you're enjoying it. And that is the end of our introduction and explanation of the Marshall Plan. Ray? Yeah.
0: America number one. Sorry. (laughs)
1: I'm not going